0: Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we're taking a look at apologetics, particularly cultural apologetics, with Dr. Paul M. Gold, who's the professor of philosophy of religion at Palm Beach Atlantic University and the author author of Cultural Apologetics, Renewing the Christian Voice, Conscience, and Imagination in a Disenchanted World, which came out three years ago. And his brand new book just came out a few weeks ago, A Good and True Story, 11 Clues to Understanding Our Universe and Your Place in It. Dr. Gould, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Dennis.
1: It's great to be with you today.
0: So, uh, let's start out, just give uh, the audience an idea of where you're coming from in your own theological or church tradition orientation.
1: Yeah, good. So, I grew up in a nominally Christian home where we went to church Uh, A little more than Christmas and Easter, but it wasn't a super essential part of our lives. But I always, because of that, considered myself religious. That was uh, the Lutheran Church. Uh, But then um, in college, actually, uh, freshman year in college, a couple of guys knocked on my door and asked if I wanted to talk about spiritual things. And because at the time I considered myself religious, I invited them in and they actually shared the gospel really clearly. And I realized at that moment, this was, you know, at 18 years old, that um, I didn't believe what they were talking about. I didn't understand the gospel. That was the first time I really heard the gospel clearly presented. And so that sort of set me on a journey um, that eventually culminated in me becoming a Christian during my college years. And then I got uh, sort of really involved in campus ministry with an organization called Campus Crusade for Christ or Crew. And so that was kind of my entree into uh, Christianity was a, a church organization. And, and then so from there in my adult life, graduating from college, we basically we've lived all over the country and we, we sort of go to the like best evangelical church that we can find. So I guess I would just consider myself broadly evangelical um, and you know, committed to the deep truths of, of God as revealed in Scripture.
0: Okay, and then um, as far as your book, Cultural Apologetics, why did you write it in the first place, and what would you say is the central thesis of the book?
1: Good, yeah, I mean, so that question the question that, um, so after graduating from college, you know, became a Christian in college, uh, worked as a CPA for a couple years, but both myself and my wife, who I had met in college, had a huge heart for college students because that's when God got a hold of our lives. And so we actually joined staff with crew and worked with crew and with college students for about 16 years uh, in our younger days. And the question that animated me all those years was, how does the gospel get a fair hearing in culture? And that was the question that animated the book, really. Uh, finally, uh, you know, later on, there's a longer story, but eventually found myself in academia, was teaching at a seminary, developing curriculum and classes. And I said, hey, let's teach a class on cultural apologetics. That sounded like a really important topic. And... Um, you know nobody at that time was really doing much in that area and there wasn't a really definitive definition of it but that's what began this this process was teaching this class and then this question of cultural apologetics and then from there after teaching a class for uh, on cultural apologetics about three or four times i finally landed on my own view or definition of cultural apologetics which is basically that we're that as christians we're called to to um help others see uh, that Christianity is not just true to the way the world is, but also true to the way the world ought to be, right? That we want to show that it's true or reasonable, but it's also desirable. So it's good and beautiful as well. And that's kind of the the way that I view um, cultural apologetics and the question that I'm trying to address in that book.
0: And how does cultural apologetics um, tie in with other forms of apologetics?
1: Yeah, so good. Good. so at the time of writing the book, so it came out in 2019, and there were a number of different sort of movements in apologetics as you kind of watch these things um, being a part of this movement. You know, uh, I think historically, a lot of, of apologetics <clears throat> is what you might call rational apologetics. Um, sometimes you can even do subdivisions within that, and you can have historical apologetics looking at the historical evidence for the resurrection, for example, or scientific apologetics where you can look at the scientific evidence that points to God or even a, like philosophical Apologetics, and these are all things that I'm deeply involved in and care deeply about. But uh, what I began to notice was, in, in addition to what we might call, and I just did, rational apologetics, there were people that were starting to carve out lanes uh, like moral apologetics and and going deeper into the, the question of morality and the moral law and how that points to God. And so there's this lane developing on moral apologetics, and then others like Holly Ordway. And and a lot of people interested in C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were writing on something called imaginative apologetics. And, and then I just began to think, like, wait a minute, if we're humans, you know, fully embodied creatures that have a soul and a body and emotions and minds and will and desires and all these things, and we're part of culture and we make culture and then we're shaped by it, how can we give an apologetic that's sort of full orbed that respects all the aspects of what it means to be human and that's when I began to say I think we need to carve out a, a, a lane that rules them all right I don't know it's probably not the best reference scene, but you know uh, cultural apologetics is just like it's to me it's inclusive of all of those versions because it respects the mind like any apologetic worth its salt has to engage in the question of truthfulness right I'm a philosopher I love syllogisms I love arguments I love all that we've got to do that But we're more than just thinking sticks, right? We have emotions and will and and conscience and the imagination. And so I wanted to give an apologetics that basically um, affirms and honors humans as humans. And also it would make sense that we should be able to use all the epistemic tools available to us in making our case for Christianity. So that's how I came across or came upon uh, what I call cultural apologetics.
0: Imagination is very important for you in this book. So, how do you tie imagination to beauty and then to cultural apologetics?
1: Good. So, um, in the book, there are a couple moments in writing it that I just felt like there there are things that God just sort of laid on my lap, like they were just super, like illuminated to me and just really helped pull some pieces together. And one of those was in thinking deeply and teaching on Paul's encounter with the Greeks at Mars Hill in Acts chapter seventeen just watching how he identifies a starting place as he engages this culture unlike his own. So in Athens, it was this the fact that there are these idols to the unknown God all over the city. And so he identifies the impulse behind those idols, this religious impulse. And then he kind of builds this case from that starting point to Jesus and the gospel. And thinking about that, I began to ask the question, what are some starting points for our Athens? Like for today, you know, the culture that we find ourselves in, um, And so that was one piece. The second piece was reading this book by Peter Kreeft called uh, Back to Virtue, where he talks about how God has given us three prophets of the soul. And the three prophets – and I reproduced this in the book because it just pulled so many things together uh, in my own thinking. He talks about how God has given us a mind or reason, and that's on a quest for truth. Uh, the object of its longing and that God has given us a conscience and that's on a quest for goodness and then of course God has given us the imagination and that's on the quest for the object of its longing which is beauty. And then if you put your theology cap on and think what is the source of goodness, truth, and beauty? Well, the answer is Christ. Right? One of my favorite uh, actually quotes from Augustine he says in, in Confessions Book 3 he says of God, he says, you are the beauty of all beautiful things uh, and the good of all good things and I would just add the truth in which all true things point. And so... The imagination is crucial because we are created, we are creatures with an imagination that's such an important faculty. C.S. Lewis, Lewis calls it the, the organ of meaning, right? It's that which helps us understand the world around us. Um, and that imagination is on a quest for beauty. And, and, of course, the source of beauty itself is God. And so I want, again, back to that idea of using all the resources at our disposal. Um, well, of course, it would make sense that we would care about the imagination and its quest for beauty and then figure that into an apologetic for Christ. And you uh,
0: do a lot of work with C.S. Lewis in this book, and you refer to his four ages, unenchanted, enchanted, disenchanted, and re-enchanted. So um, can you explain what he's doing with those and how you, how you tie those to cultural apologetics?
1: Good. So this is one of the wonderful, again, moments in the book, in my research for the book that unlocked something. And it was actually reading this essay called Talking About Bicycles by C.S. Lewis, a not well-known essay um, that you can find in in an obscure collection of, of articles of his called On Present Concerns. But he wrote this little article talking about bicycles, and to me it, it illuminates all of what Lewis is doing, actually. And it's kind of like that interpretive key in so many ways of, of C.S. Lewis. And in there, <laughs> he uses the bicycle as a metaphor for really any, as a stand-in for anything in our world. And he, he basically says we go through these four stages with respect to the bicycle, but that's of course the four stages we go through with respect to everything. And he he basically claims that we. Many of us are stuck in that third stage, right? So, you know, as an infant, we have the bicycle and all the human gadgets around us and they mean nothing to us. So we're unenchanted. That's stage one. We begin, you know, um, that first moment when we begin to ride that bike, thinking about like my kids when I was, you know, running behind them with their training wheels off and you push them, uh, push them off and suddenly they don't fall and they're riding. And you can just imagine that the, the sense of joy and freedom and happiness. Well, that would be Lewis's second stage of enchant- enchanted, where life is as it should be. And then, as always, uh, you know, we we grow tired. And like for me, I had to ride my bike everywhere as a kid and I hated it. And so like you entered that third stage of disenchanted toward the bike. And Lewis says, that's kind of where we all stay, but we've got to press through to the fourth stage, which is re-enchantment. And by that, what he means is that we would begin in the case of the bike to enjoy it as gift and enjoy it in creaturely response. And that's what Lewis is arguing, is that, that everything is gift, and we need to learn to enjoy it in creaturely response. And so I, I found that super helpful in understanding um, Lewis, but also I think there's insight here in understanding our culture, right? In many ways, we no longer perceive the world in its proper light. We perceive it as disenchanted. And we've got to ask God and join with God and, and others and the Holy Spirit to help reenchant the world. So we can talk about that, but that was part of the, the proposal in the book.
0: So in terms of re-enchantment, you talk about the argument from desire. Uh, I find this one very fascinating. So um, give us some insights into that.
1: Yeah, so you're right. I do like Lewis, and I did talk about Lewis a lot in the book. Um, Not as much in the newer book, but I did a lot in this, this one, and I found him very helpful. So the argument from desire is one argument within a family of arguments for God, right? That that begin with some empirical premise. Uh, so you have like cosmological arguments that begin with some empirical premise about the universe or part of the universe and then plug that into a philosophical argument that leads to a theological conclusion. And so you have these sort of internal arguments for God too that begin with some empirical premise about the human, about about, about us, right? And so in this case, and, and what Lewis so often did was he would you know consider the set of all our longings or all our desires, <clears throat> and then he would pick one Usually he picked this deepest longing of the heart for God. I, I called it the transcendent desire, and you plug that into an argument that leads to this theological conclusion. So one of the, the one of the great places Lewis uh, gives various iterations of the argument from desire uh, a number of places, but one of them that you can find that's the most clear is in the chapter on hope in his book *Mere Christianity*. And, and one of my favorite quotes there that I think is a good way to kind of get at what he's doing is he says, hey, if, if we find within ourselves some desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most, he says then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that's kind of the intuition behind the argument from desire. And again, I think that's such an underutilized argument and one that like Peter Craig thinks is one of the most fascinating arguments, apart from the ontological argument, you know, it's one of these most fascinating arguments where you learn not just that God exists, uh, not just that there's something that satisfies our deepest longing, uh, but that thing that satisfies our deepest longing is God. And so that's, those are some good results from the argument. So I play with it a little bit and I think because I think it's a strong argument that deserves, especially in this culture so driven by a longing for unfettered desires. It's a, a, an argument that we should um, consider and share with others, I think.
0: But it's also connected to the fact that we have all these other desires like for food right. and for sleep mm. and for um, reproduction. So right. how did, how did the, the transcendental desire get there if there was no necessity or no way of fulfilling it? So what are your thoughts yeah, on yeah, that? How does, how does he oh. tie those together? How do you tie those together?
1: Yeah, well, I think what he, so the actual argument that he gives, like, in terms of the premises, he begins with this observation that, hey, every natural desire that we have has an object that satisfies it, right? And so he, as Lewis does, you know, it's like, we want food, we, we're hungry, there's such a thing as food, we we want sex, or, you know, we want relationship, there's such a thing as sex, you know, or whatever. Um, and the point is, for every natural desire, so he's making a distinction there between natural desires and artificial desires, but for every natural desire that we have, um, there's a corresponding object that satisfies that, right? So that's like his first premise. And then he has a second premise, and this is where we get into the transcendent desire. He says, well, look at that set of desires within the, your own human heart. Maybe this, you know people won't always be aware of them, but he, he thinks that if you look at that set of desires, you'll find one, what I will call the transcendent desire, you know, this longing for God. And you're going to plug that in and say, well, this is a natural desire, and we can give arguments for why this is a natural desire. Um, I think there are good arguments for that. Um, and so there should be some corresponding object that satisfies that. And of course, nothing in this world will satisfy that. So there must be something beyond this world that satisfies that. And so you want to tighten up the premises. You want You need to make some arguments for it. But um, by the way, what's so cool about Lewis is he doesn't just – if you think about the arguments from desire – I'm sorry. If you think about the set of all your desires like an inverted triangle, right? At the top, you've got your surface desires like for food and You know, that hamburger or or that piece of food, that Twinkie or whatever, and then you go down to the, the base of it, you have like your deep desires, and then at the bottom you have your deepest desire, this longing for God. Right above that deepest desire, the bottom of the triangle, you have what I would call your deep desires of the human heart. And there you find goodness, our longings for goodness, truth, and beauty, our longing for meaning, our longing for happiness, our longing for justice and an identity, all those things. So sometimes Lewis doesn't go to the transcendent desire, the deepest desire. So for example, in his essay on the weight of glory, he goes up to those deep desires and he pulls the longing for beauty and he runs the same argument, but this time he's looking at the argument from beauty and, and he goes from there to the existence of um, you know the source of beauty as that which we long for. And so he'll play with this, um, and, and this is what's so cool about the argument from desires. You, you don't have to just run it with that deepest longing, the longing for God. I think he can run similar arguments with our long, our deep longings of the heart for goodness and truth and beauty and justice and things like that as well.
0: All right, and then uh, reason and truth, reason and truth tied to cultural apologetics. So, what do we do with that?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, so re- the plank of reason in building a case from any culture that you find yourself in to Jesus. You've got to walk the plank of reason, right? We are thinking, as Aristotle said famously, we are rational animals, or as he said in the beginning of metaphysics, all men, all humans desire to know. And so the, the idea is that, of course, we've got to walk that plank of reason. We've got to give arguments. Why? Because we, we are creatures who have been created to to um, flourish in light of our nature, And as rational animals, part of our nature is that we have minds, and so we want to be rightly related to reality. We we don't want to live in a fantasy world, right? We want to be rightly related to reality, and that's why we care about truth. And this is what's so freeing. You know, I work with a lot of faculty uh, and speak to Christian faculty a lot. And and in many ways, I mean, you could be teaching geology or, you know, pick it. You pick it, and as long as you're awakening this desire for truth— We're setting people on a trajectory, on a journey that finds at its its terminus the source of truth truth itself, which is God, right? And so we've got to use our minds and we've got to show the reasonableness of Christianity. Um, And that's why that's important. I would never – I mean, so in many ways, I know we're talking about this phrase cultural apologetics. I just think this is what apologetics is. And so any apologetic is going to want to demonstrate the reasonableness. My claim is, though, it's not just the reasonableness. It's also the desirability that we need to address. And so I'm just trying to say, actually, what, culture, what apologetics really is, is a little broader than just giving syllogisms. And I love giving syllogisms. I, want to, I do that all day. I teach that all day. But we've got to do more. And not everybody likes syllogisms. So we want to learn how to communicate in ways that actually, you know, our, our listeners can understand.
0: So that brings us to uh, conscience, the faculty of conscience as it relates to the good, and how do you see that as uh, tying into cultural apologetics?
1: Yeah, again, if you think about the fact that we are not just desiring creatures and um, rational creatures, we're also moral creatures, right? We're moral agents. Very few people, there are some that deny that we're moral agents, but at least the common sense pre-philosophical intuition is that we are, we are moral agents and that our actions matter. And then in some way, we have this ability to shape our lives and our character and um, the choices that we make, and we're self-determiners of those things. And so the way that I cash that out in the book, Cultural Apologetics, is this idea that we have this deep longing for goodness, and the conscience, the human conscience is the guide, you know, that will uh, aid us on our search for goodness. And then I parse the longing for goodness into three sub-longings. And these are, are the sub-longings, I think, are easier to grasp onto. And that's the longing for justice that all of us have. I think that we, sh- you know, we share this with everyone, right? The world is turned upside down. We want to see it upside. We want to see it right, right sided up. Uh, that was not the right way to say it. But, you know, we want to see things made right. Um so the longing for justice number 2 the longing for wholeness right we don't want to be dr jekyll and mr hyde we want to be whole we want all our thinking and our willings to be in the same direction uh aimed at the good and then finally this longing for significance like we want to live for a story that matters right right and so i think that again in a cultural apologetics that cares about and walks this plank of the conscience we can join arms with people and work toward justice and then seek the God who is just, right? We can um, help people connect this longing to live for something great to the, the true good and true story of the world, which is the gospel. And of course, um, in our moral failings and in our fragmented, in our empty selves, we can help people see that wholeness can be found. And that's good news, right? That's profoundly good news in this world that is uh, just, as as one writer puts it, Philip Reeve calls it a warring, this culture is like a warring series Of fragments, right? But there's good news that there is a story that actually understands us that can unite us and make us whole and bring us the happiness that we long for. And so that's what I'm thinking about when I talk about um, addressing the sort of the plank of the conscience on our quest uh, to show people who Jesus is.
0: You address several very relevant uh, barriers that the Christian apologist faces today. So one of those is... uh, you know, indicating, showing, giving evidence that the Christian life is actually a good life. Because uh, so many today see Christian ethics, as especially as it relates to sexuality and all sorts of other things, as actually oppressive. So, how do you address that?
1: Good. So, one of the concerns um, that I'm addressing in the book is these different barriers to the gospel, right? And we've got to, as apologists, as cultural apologists, we've got to address the barriers, the objections to the gospel. And one of them um, is this idea that Christianity is oppressive and its ethic is unloving. And you're right. We see that most often in, in gender and sexuality and, and things like that. And to me, I lay the, the – and so Christianity is viewed as undesirable, right? Why would we want to be Christians? Because there's this repressive ethic. And I lay the fault of why the fact that it's viewed as undesirable our feet, at the Christian, at the church, uh, and at Christian's feet. Why? Because we have a weak theology of the body. We have a weak theology of marriage. We have a weak theology of human sexuality. We have a weak theology and philosophy of gender, and what it means to be human, and to flourish as humans. And so really, um, I guess my plea is that we first got to kind of get our, we got to live the kind of life, and understand how all things fit together in Christ, such that we can present to the world something that they actually see as attractive. So part of the problem with Christianity being perceived by others as undesirable is our fault. Now, of course, it's, it's more than that, right? Um, there's all these cultural things going on. Culture is not logical. And so there's, there's things out there. There's, um, you know, as one writer philosopher puts it, this this cosmic authority issue that all of us have it's called sin but we just we want to go our own ways we want to do things our own the way that we think we want to and the thing the way that we think we'll find satisfaction so obviously we've got to address um those kinds of things but yeah so what i'm doing at least in the book is uh laying it first at our feet and arguing as christians because cultural apologetics is a book written for christians um that we need to become a little more robust in our own views and live a, a, a life that is winsome and attractive in those ways
0: so that brings us up to your uh next book. Um there's a lot more we could talk about with your first but um so why did you write a good and true story and uh what is its central thesis?
1: Good. <clears throat> okay, well yeah, let me say a few things. So in the Cultural Apologetics book Um, I do some time kind of diagnosing culture and describing how we got to this disenchanted moment is the way that I will describe the age we find ourselves in here in the West. But then there's a sort of more prescriptive and hopeful part of the book where I argue, hey, given God's intentions for humans, we can join with God and each other by the power of the Holy Spirit and re-enchant the world. And I kind of give these two steps as prescriptive steps. You know, we can awaken longing. For the good, the true, and the beautiful, and then we can return to reality. That, that's the step two. And that's how we join with God and each other to reenchant the world. And in that section where I talked about returning to reality, um, I explained that in terms of two ideas. Um, number one, that we, Christians, would learn to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does. So that's the first thing, and how we return to reality. So, claim about us, that we would learn to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does, and to see all things in relation to God. And then the second thing was that we would learn to invite others to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does. And those two things beca- are, are two future book projects. One of them is written to Christians, and then one of them is, is written to non-believers, uh, helping them to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does. And so this book, the one that we'll talk about here that just came out, uh, a week ago, is that second book? So it's not a book about cultural apologetics; it's actually my attempt to do a book of cultural apologetics, uh, to to basically make the case for Christianity uh, in such a way that illustrates the kind of things that I was arguing we should do in that first book, right? And so it's written for nonbelievers, um, and it's it's trying to it's taking the reader on a journey, right? And uh, uh, to and the central metaphor of this book, a good and true story, is. Uh, this metaphor of cairns—these these rocks that are stacked up—you know—as you're hiking to a mountain summit, and the, the cairns guide us on the way to the summit. And the idea is that there's all these clues um, all throughout the world, and even in the human heart, that as we that point to the divine. And as we start stacking them one by one, eventually they you know they help us find the summit, and and they help us discover the true story of the world. So that's that's what's going on in this book. And I'll just say one last thing, and then I'll stop on the book. I have a couple theses um, that are guiding the way that I'm thinking about it. And the first one is a thesis about reality itself. And it's something that I talk about in cultural apologetics, but I'm trying to apply it in this book. And that's the idea. It's a traditional Christian way of understanding the world uh, in terms of wander and return to God, or actually in, the Latin phrase, Exodus and redditus," um, all things come from God, and one day all things return to God, and God will renew all things. And so, so many thinkers, Lewis included, uh, and Tolkien and others, believed that reality was, was this on, shape like the story of, all, you know, of Exodus, all things from God, and all things one day return to God. So I wrote this book with the conviction that reality is a kind of story. In fact, it's a good and true story. Second thing was a thesis about evidence. Um, And that's that the evidence for God is actually widely available. It's everywhere. Um, So it's widely available, but it's secondly, easily resistible. And what I mean by that is that the evidence for God needs to be interpreted, right? We need to help others to see it in its proper light. That's that seeing and delighting in the world the way Jesus does. And so what I'm trying to do is pick out 11 features of the world that I find pretty interesting and compelling and help the reader to interpret them correctly. And that's what I'm trying to do. And the third theses is one about humans, about us. And that is that each of us um, has a sense that we're on a quest to discover the true story of the world. And in discovering that story, we discover our true name, we discover our, our identity, we discover our meaning. And that's why I use the metaphor of of the quest or the journey uh, in, the bo- in the book. So anyway, that's what's going on and really glad to see it you know, done and in print.
0: You have 11 clues. Uh, the universe, that, especially the fine-tuning of the universe, is the first one, which I find the evidence so compelling to point towards uh, intelligent designer. So um, what do you do with that um, as a, you, you know, to um, make your argument that, that God created the universe as opposed to naturalistic, some sort of um, causes? And especially um, get into the odds, the mathematical odds a little bit, too.
1: Oh good. Okay. So you're talking about fine-tuning, the evidence yes. for fine-tuning? Yeah. So chapter so I begin um the book on this quest uh with um Lady Nature joins us. Um that was a in many medieval travel companion books you would find a uh, personification of different characters, and so Lady Nature was this personification of the world. Um and so I I we invite Lady Nature to come and show us the empirical evidence from the world. And so we begin in chapter one with the universe itself. And Lady Nature is pointing out all these features about the world. It's contingency, it's temporal finitude, it's immensity, and then it's fine-tuning. These are the four features of the world that I focus on in that chapter. And with respect to fine-tuning, what's so interesting is, so um, there's not a lot of debate about whether or not the universe is fine-tuned for life. There are some that will try to argue that it's not fine-tuned on a razor's edge for life. But most people will accept the claim that it's finely-tuned and there's many ways that the universe could have been where life wouldn't be possible but you know there are this very narrow slice this razor's edge in which we have universes that are life permitting the only real question is how do we interpret that evidence right it's again this idea it's widely available but uh, but easily resistible and so <laughs> i think that it figures in um pretty powerfully to an argument for God because of, as you actually already mentioned, the, the incredible probabilities that are involved in these finely tuned parameters, right? So just consider briefly in there, this isn't uh, like a full blown work, uh, but consider uh, the fine tuning of the laws of nature, the fine tuning of the constants that you find within the laws of nature, and then the fine tuning of the initial conditions uh, that, you know, we find at the, the beginning, the temporal beginning of the universe. And one that's incredibly compelling, it's always been super interesting to me is this idea that Roger Penrose um was famous for exploring and, and uh, explaining the fact that the universe began in the state of what's called low entropy. Um, the idea is that there's all this usable energy, right? And it's and mm-hmm. the fact that it would be in the state of this, this low entropy or high usable energy um, is like incredibly uh, improbable, right? And the fact that it hasn't run out, of course, is is an interesting thing as well. But just the fact that it began with all this usable energy is one of these incredibly um, improbable statistics that uh, is virtually physically impossible to happen. um, And uh, therefore I think suggestive of like an intelligent cause or a divine cause to it. So yeah, try to explain just looking at the numbers a little bit, how vastly surprising a finely tuned universe would be on naturalism but on theism, given intelligence, it's not surprising that you would see a universe finally tuned on a razor's edge for life.
0: So when you're talking about mathematical probability, are we talking about odds like uh, 1 out of 100 chance or 1 out of 1,000? Or just how big are these numbers?
1: Yeah, so you got, you're going to make me look at the book. But it's no, it's crazy. It's way, way bigger than that. It, these are numbers like – I'm not going to look at the book. But uh, you know, it's like if there are 10 to the 80 subatomic particles in the entire known universe, right – these numbers are are way bigger than that. In other words, the, the probabilities are so small that they pass the universal probability bounds of happening at all, right? So really, I mean, charitably, it's just it's it's not physically possible. Although I'm happy to be charitable and say, well, there's there's a sliver of chance, but they're just so highly unlikely. Uh, it's not just like I'm, I just mentioned the low entropy state of the initial condition, but there's, but it's not just one, right? It's it's over forty uh, finely tuned parameters all of the probabilities that are astronomical numbers. Um, and you can look at the book for, you know, our, our listeners can go, go look at the book or look at the literature on fine-tuning to see how astronomical these numbers are. And again, it's just mind-bogglingly, mind-bogglingly un- improbable. Um, and that's what's, I think, evidence, or at least cries out for explanation.
0: It's pretty compelling. Pretty compelling. Yeah. All right. And then you go on into life. I mean, the existence of life itself. We've got, you've got all these... Uh, what we just discussed to get past but for even to have one-celled creatures on this earth let alone humans so how mm-hmm. um, does that point to a creator rather than naturalism
1: yeah you're st- we're still dealing with probabilities and these in- incredible odds um, you know there's this question uh, I think the standard naturalistic story is that we don't know exactly how it happened but we do know that it did happen life somehow rose from non-natural blind processes right and uh and then you have other uh theists uh like i 'm thinking of James tor, who I read a lot of his work on this he's a he 's a synthetic chemist chemist from Rice University he says no guys he's he 's talking to his his colleagues like we don 't know nobody knows how life could have could have arisen from these non natural blind processes in fact, it seems highly unlikely, and so yeah, when you look at it, you have all these questions you know if we just go with the standard dating um you know if the earth was is four point five billion years old. Uh, you know, um, we have, I think our earliest sort of fossil evidence of life is 3.5 billion years ago and might even, we might even have some from 3.7 billion years ago. Um, and if the early bombardment period, uh, took place uh, until about, um, Uh, About 3.8 billion years ago, you know, the Earth was too hot for anything. It was just all molten uh, lava, right? It didn't solidify. Um, So you really have this really finite window between 300 million and 100 million years for life to arrive on Earth. Um, and then you have the question of where did it arrive, right? So Darwin had postulated this little warm pond, and and then now scientists are, are trying to figure out what that could be. Could it be earth vents? I'm sorry, could it be vents at, on ocean floors? Could it be somewhere in the atmosphere? Could it be beyond the atmosphere, somewhere in outer space, um, and, and things like that? So you have this question of where did it happen? But really, even beyond those kinds of questions, the timing question, which is, you know, life arose, re- geologically speaking, incredibly fast, Number two, we don't exactly know where in the early Earth uh, it arose. If it arose on Earth, we can assume that it did. Um, But then you have these two other insurmountable problems, and I call them the ingredient problem and the assembly problem. And the ingredient problem is, you know, you have all these sort of basic building blocks for life. You've got genetic material, you've got um, proteins, you've got um, lipids. And then you've got, of course, all of those those building blocks for life are composed of, you know, different molecules, and, and, and those need to come together in the right way and the ingredient problem is it's really hard to to um bring these things together in a naturalistic pro- process right and so you have early uh experiments in the 1950s on on, on what the universe or the earth might have been like and they were able to assemble a few of these sort of the components for these these building blocks um but most people think that these these experiments don't really show um that we can get life from non-life because it was highly um artificial uh, environments with test tubes and labs. And, and actually the, the test tubes in the labs didn't simulate what early earth atmosphere would have been like. And so you have the ingredients problem. We've not been able to uh, develop naturalistically um, these basic building blocks of life. And then even if you did, then you have the assembly problem, right? How do you put them together in the right way such that you, you know, you actually get life. And so when you start to look at the numbers again, the odds for like a single functional protein, it's just, virtually uh, impossible. I mean, there is a sliver of mathematical probability, but they're very extremely rare. And again, those things, I think, are suggestive of of an intelligent cause.
0: But then the atheist, naturalistic uh, scientist is going to say, you guys, every time we encounter a problem we can't figure out, you guys just go straight to saying, well, God did it. God is the explanation for the the mystery. We need to do the hard work of science and keep figuring this out rather than just going straight Mm -hmm. to God. Yeah. What would you say I, to
1: them? I, I would say the this is not what's taking place here. These aren't God of the Gap arguments. Um, in fact, it's the more we know about protein, functional proteins, and and their probabilities of you know be, um, evolving new functional proteins. The more we know about these things. Uh, the more we see how improbable it is. So it's actually not an argument from ignorance, which is what God of the gap type objections usually are. It's in fact just the opposite. The more we learn about the world, the more, m- more we learn about the complexity of the cell and how rare functional proteins are in you know the possibility space, uh, the more that we know about that, the more it seems that um, there must be some intelligence behind it. So yeah, that's the quick reply to the God of the gaps kind of objection.
0: All right. So, um, moving on to species, we have this huge multiplicity of species. And uh, considering causes, how do we look at naturalistic? How do you defend the, the theistic against the naturalistic in this the species area?
1: Yeah, so... Um You know, uh, one of the fundamental problems when it comes to species. So I I, I wanted to look at four origin debates uh, in this book because they're, number one, they're intrinsically interesting to me. But again, they all cry out for explanation. So so I'm looking at the origin of the universe, the origin of life, the origin of species, and then the origin of humans. And I know that the origin of species has become a particularly toxic um, one to debate or to argue and so I, I, I began the chapter just with the sheer diversity and wonder of life, because it's actually quite amazing when you think about it. not just that we have life, but but the history of life on Earth is incredibly diverse, and it's awe inspiring um, And in fact, what was kind of sad in reading and doing research for this chapter is I learned that ninety nine percent of creatures that have existed are now extinct, and so you know we think about how diverse our world is today, but it's not even close to how crazy diverse it has been in the past. And that's something that awakens wonder, right? And it it spurs me on to want to know what explains this incredible diversity of life. So I know that the question about evolution has become sort of difficult to debate, but I wanted to look at the evidence. And so I think as like Stephen Meyer, who's a defender in intelligent design, he does, I think, pose the question really nicely um, to the neo-Darwinian. The neo-Darwinian synthesis is kind of the dominant way of explaining how we get this diversity of life, right? We begin with this single cell of life or this very simple life, and then through uh the Darwinian mechanisms of natural selection, acting over mutations and genetic drift, we get we get um new species. And then Stephen Meyer uh poses this question that I think is the fundamental question though for the neo-Darwinian synthesis, um and is that that is how do you get new new information infused into the system via naturalistic processes such that we get these innovative body plans. And that's the question, um, you know, is natural selection the mechanism or natural selection plus any other naturalistic mechanisms sufficient to get new information? And that's where I found, you know, the intelligent design arguments quite compelling, right? It's pretty difficult to get from just the mechanisms on offer uh, given the Darwinian or, or maybe a non-Darwinian paradigm. It's pretty hard to get um, the, the kind of information that's required. To get these increasingly complex creatures and so i find that compelling just from a purely scientific um evidence base. i will say because i'm not a scientist i'm a philosopher trying to understand the science that i i in the book i consider well wait a minute what if i'm just misunderstanding the evidence and i'm totally fine with maybe misunderstanding all the evidence right um, what if what if in fact evolution and some naturalistic mechanisms do explain the diversity of life what's interesting there is this, I made this discovery, and this is from my philosophical work, though, is that um, you can't have evolution without essences, right? So you need to have creatures that have natures or essences um, that need to be stable s- such that they can adapt, have variations such that they can evolve into new species, right, with new essences and, and new natures. And so anyway, what's so interesting about that, it, if evolution... Could it happen and i 'm convinced of this on philosophical grounds that you need these you need essences well then there 's this kind of interesting argument in the history of the tradition that goes from essences or natures um, or forms as they are sometimes talked about in the philosophical literature to a divine mind that is the source or the idea of these essences or natures. And this would, in fact, be Aquinas' fifth way in his famous five ways. And so either way, whether there's Darwinian or non-Darwinian processes that account for the diversity of life, or those aren't sufficient to account for the diversity of life, either way, I think that the best explanation for the diversity of life is that there is a divine mind behind it and intelligence behind it. So it was a fun chapter because I'm really interested in these questions, and I, I continue still even today to have lots of questions and want to continue to research it. But but the discovery I made was that either way, I think that the diversity points to uh, deity behind it. And so in some ways, the evolution debate isn't – it doesn't need to, um, you know, make at least Christians uh, worry. I know sometimes they do, right? Either way, God did it, I'm just trying to figure out which way he did it, if that if that makes right. sense.
0: All right. And moving on to morality, you um, you argue for the uh, objective moral order. And yeah. so um, how do you argue for that? And then how do you uh, defend theism against naturalism as a basis for this?
1: Good. So, okay, good. Um, so now in the book, we've moved from the origin debate and, you know, look at these, the universe, life, species, and humans. And now we begin to look at the contours of the human heart. The first couple of chapters, I'm going from evidence from effect to cause, right? What is the best – or from effect to explanation. What's the best explanation for these, these empirical things we see in the world? Beginning in the chapter on morality, I begin to go the other direction. I go from um, the anatomy of the human heart to fit. Like what's the best fit? What's the best story that makes sense of these things? And so in the morality chapter, so ultimately we're looking for a story – Um, and this question of, is there meaningful happiness? And so I begin with the question of morality. So how do you argue um, for an objective moral order? Well, there's two ways, uh, and I do both in the book. One is to um, distinguish two mutually exclusive uh, views on the moral order. One would be called subjectivism. The other would would be called objectivism. Subjectivism is just the view that all moral truths are subjective relative to the individual. And then um, objectivism would be just the claim that there are at least some moral truths that are independent of minds and speakers, right? So you have mutually exclusive options, and then you just argue for the falsity of subjectivism. Right? So that's one way, it's a kind of indirect way to argue that there's an objective moral order. If subjectivism is false, well, given that there's only two options and they're mutually exclusive, objectivism is the case. And so I give some reasons why subjectivism, moral subjectivism is false. And there are things like, and I won't go over them here, but there are things like, hey, we seem to have moral progress, right? And we couldn't have moral progress if there weren't objective moral facts in the world that we're aligning more and more closely to, or even the, the reality of moral error, right? We couldn't be wrong if there was no objective truth about moral facts. And so I give arguments against subjectivism, and that's one way to argue to an objective moral order. The second way, though, and it's much quicker, is just um, to argue that we can see that there's objective moral values and obligations with the sheer, with the, the light of reason itself. C.S. Lewis argued this way in uh, Miracles, actually, and I think that he's right. Um, and so in the book, I briefly uh, point to two or three tests. Right? Josh Rasmussen, who's a, a great philosopher, teaches over... Um, at the Azusa pacific he talks about the self-test in one of his books um, and he says look in the mirror and what do you see right you see arguably intuitively you just see some person of great value objectively valuable right that's the self-test you can just see by the light of reason itself that there's objectively valuable things in the world that's pointing to moral objective facts or like the wallet test i think i called it you know steal some someone's wallet you know see what they say and, uh, you know, they're probably going to say you can't do that because it's just wrong. Right. And you, you kind of do these intuition pumps, right? the wallet test, the self test. There's another test. Scott Davidson's a philosopher. He argues about the he gives the, uh, the test of the annihilation test. Right. Imagine a world just like our own, uh, exactly like ours. But you take out loving relationships. And then the question is, in that world, this annihilated world where you where you take out all loving relationships, would you have lost something with a value of objective value? And I think that our intuition, because we just see that it's the case, is that we would have lost something of great value that's objectively valuable, love, right? And so in some ways, you don't need to argue for it because, as Lewis would put it, you see by the, the um, indescribable light of reason itself that, you know, we ought to love our neighbor or that persons are valuable.
0: And then, oh, and then uh, how do you argue from there to, to Right. God?
1: Yeah. Okay, good. So step one, there are objective moral values and duties, right? So then the question is, what best explains them? And that's your second part of the question. And in the, in the book, I canvassed the, what I think are the three leading options. Um, nothing explains them. That's one option. That's platonic atheism uh, or brute fact atheism. Eric Weilenberg would be a defender of this. So that's the nothing answer. The universe explains it. And here I'm thinking of like Thomas Nagel type uh, explanations where you have a kind of teleology built into the universe and it's just a brute fact that you have teleology and then of course God. And I basically argue for those, the one I'm most interested in, if I were not a theist, I would have I would pick brute fact atheism. I would go with Eric Weilenberg and his proposal. Um, I think it's that to me, you know, sometimes you, you just stop at brute facts, right? But I give I give reasons why that's not the best explanation in the book. And it's things like um utter, it, and i you know i'll just give you two reasons now i give four reasons in the book one one thing that's kind of interesting about brute fact atheism is you know we have these platonic facts you know um honesty is a virtue and and you know um uh rape is wrong or murder is wrong right um and then the question is it's utterly mysterious how these platonic things latch on to our actions and they latch on the right way right That's utterly mysterious. And in fact, there is no account for how they do that. And so we're actually multiplying our brute facts. There's not just the brute fact of the moral truths, but there's the brute fact of how they hook up together. And that's a very unparsimonious view. And when you do theory comparison, um, you want to have as little as possible of unexplained facts. And so theism is going to give a, a much better explanation for that. One other just quick reason that I gave why uh, I think theism better explains morality than brute fact atheism is because we have this intuition, and it seems right, that are, that we're obligated to people, not to things. But if if moral facts are just sort of platonic ideas or platonic objects, um, why am I obligated to a platonic object, Right. But on theism, I'm, I'm obligated ultimately to a person, the person of, you know, of God. And to me, that, that has incredible explanatory power. So kind of go through the dialectic with each of those options like that.
0: And you write about the elusive concept of meaning and deal with uh, absurdism, nice nihilism, enchanted naturalism, and enchanted supernaturalism. <clears throat> so if you could explain what you mean by all those.
1: Good. So, okay. So at this part in the book, we're exploring the question of meaning and um, the question, is there any meaning to it all? Right? Is there an intelligible story uh, at all? And, and uh, here I'm considering, like, I call it the existential set. Um, in the heart, each of us have these six longings for purpose, for value, for significance, for intelligibility, right? A world that make, to make sense of a world, uh, identity, and identity, and then transcendence. So I'm looking for a story that fits that existential set. The four stories that I canvas with respect to meaning are absurdism, nice nihilism, as you just mentioned, enchanted naturalism, and enchanted supernaturalism. And basically what those are, and then I kind of walk through each of those, absurdism is like the French existentialist. I, I, I interact a little here with Sartre and his story, Nausea, um, and it was wonderful there. But the idea of absurdism is that there's no meaning at all, not even in the subjective landscape of our hearts, and just argue that that's not the case, right? There's at least subjective meaning, so, so absurdism can't be right. Um, so I consider that and, and give some arguments for why that doesn't have a good fit with this existential set. There is another kind of nihilism that's out, out there today, though, and I thought it was important to kind of explore that as well. Um, and so I kind of riff on Alex Rosenberg, who wrote a book in 2011 called An Atheist Guide to Reality, and he called um, his version of morality um, nice uh, nihilism. And I think that's actually a right, uh, that's a good, apt description of the meaning landscape, too, um, on this view, because there's this this kind of uh, view out there today where people say, hey, guess what? God doesn't exist. There is no meaning to the world, so let's party. Let's have fun, right? And if I were a nihilist or if if I didn't think God exists, I would be a nice nihilist, right? I would want to have fun and party it up. And so I I wanted to consider this because this is a lot of where Gen Z and millennials are, right? And uh, share some stories about some crazy things people are doing because... There is no meaning in life, and so let's just go have fun. And so I wanted to consider that, and uh, you know, see if that fit with this existential set. And of course, I don't think it does. And then there's another Duke philosopher, Alex Rosenberg, teaches philosophy at Duke. There's another Duke philosopher named Owen Flanagan who wrote a really wonderful book called "The Really Hard Problem," and the subtitle was "Finding Meaning in a Naturalistic World" in a materialistic world. Hmm. And Flanagan thinks that you can find meaning in a materialistic world. Um, but it's a subjective landscape. And so I considered that there is a kind of enchanted world, right? Um, And so that was very attractive to me. um, And I wanted to see if that fits with the deep longings of the heart. And I think that gets as close as you can on naturalism. What's so interesting, um, he's riffing on David Chalmers, who's a philosopher of mind, who said that consciousness is the hard problem for the materialist or the physicalist. Um, Flanagan says, no, 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 that's that's a hard problem, but the really hard problem is finding meaning in a godless world, right? And I loved his attempt and his discussion, so I spent some time with that, but argued ultimately it doesn't go deep enough. And the fact that um, in the end we all, the human, human humans and human species pass away and the universe dies, in the end that ending actually infects the whole story, right? So it's just not a good story. And then finally, enchanted supernaturalism would just be the view that there are these deep um, deep values of goodness, truth, and beauty in the world um, because there's a God behind them all. And so I argue that that's the one that fits the best uh, with our deep longings of the heart.
0: And we'll get to more on that later. Yeah. All right, so pain and suffering. So how are we to understand suffering in the light of the argument for Mm -hmm. the existence of God? And how does... uh, human freedom free will tie into that and also you bring up this uh hypothesis of indifference
1: okay good yeah so this so i um i think this is chapter eight or nine in the book we're getting toward the end but um as we're kind of walking through the contours of the human heart it just seemed right and fitting that of course i think we need to consider pain and suffering and so at this point in the book i have this uh, you know this group uh, that's walking toward us yelling you know stop turn back you're on the wrong path and as they get closer you you know we find its voltaire and hume you can't miss hume because he's kind of big right um and and voltaire candide uh this book that he wrote right after the hurricane of um lisbon i think or not not the hurricane sorry i live in florida i'm thinking hurricanes um Earthquake. Uh, the great earthquake, right? And uh, yeah, and so, you know, all this suffering that was taking place. And so so Voltaire writes this book kind of mocking Leibniz, who says this is the best possible world. And and Voltaire's like, how could this be the best possible world? Could, you know, could God not have created a better world without all this suffering and pain? And so I think that it's really important that pain needs to be addressed in any, um, dis- any uh, attempt to seek the true story of the world. Is there a story that can accommodate pain and suffering? and so that 's why I wanted to address it. Um, how does this so and, and as you you probably know you know this, Dennis, but like this is uh, the number one argument for the non existence of God, um, you know the reality of pain and suffering and evil, and so it 's important to address for that reason um, typically though the the uh, free will fits in as one theistic reply to why there is pain and suffering, and the argument usually goes something like this, hey. You know, it's a great good that uh, we're the kind of creatures that are self-determiners of our character, our lives, and our actions, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, that's a great good. And God values that because we can have relationship with others, and we can actually have relationship with him. So God creates us as the kind of creatures who are genuinely free, such that we will misuse that freedom, at t- such that we can misuse that freedom. And so when we do misuse that freedom, we bring on pain and suffering and evil. God permits it, He allows it, he doesn't cause it, but he allows it because of some greater good, namely the kind of lives that we live and the ability to know him. so free will does fit into any um reply i think uh to the problem of pain and suffering but i but i on my own view, I actually think it's not the whole it can't be the whole story, and so I'm convinced of late um that there could be a thought theodicy that explains why God allows pain and suffering. I'm a little more tentative on this. In fact, I talk about in the book, I'm of two minds. Uh, For years, I had been what's called a skeptical theist, thinking that God does have a morally justified reason for uh, all evils. We just can't know in every case. And I'm very sympathetic to that even, even now. Um, that, that it just might be that we 're just given our human limitations, we don 't know in every instance why God permits these evils to take place, but we know that He has a morally justified reason, and that 's called skeptical theism there 's technical arguments in the literature for why that 's actually a good response to the problem the probabilistic or evident, evidential argument for evil um, but i'm i 'm wondering as i 've been reading and studying folks like Eleanor Stump, maybe there is a theodicy because maybe it 's something that 's at least hinted to in scripture um, such that And it involves free will, but it goes beyond that because it extends God's morally justified reasons into the afterlife, right? And so for Stump, she argues that our highest good, the thing that we've been made for, is their relational goods, namely relationship with God. And so God's permitting of pain and suffering and evil is for one of only two reasons, either to draw us closer to him, our highest good, or to ward us off from becoming further and further away, right? And so she has a very high constraint on giving a theodicy, a God-justifying reason for evil. She argues that um, the suffering that we undergo must benefit us. It's a high high bar for a theodicy, a person's constraint. But I'm really attracted to it and open to it um, the more that I think about it. Um, So your last question, what what about the hypothesis of indifference? So in the book, I, I dealt with what is what, in my mind, is one of the strongest articulations of the argument from evil to the non non existence of God, and that is from the philosopher Paul Draper, who I um, briefly uh, know from my time at Purdue University, where he now teaches. Um, he he came on faculty there while I was midway through my PhD. And um, he did sit on my dissertation committee, and uh, so I briefly got to know him, but he has written to me one of the most finest arguments, as well as his colleague, who used to occupy the chair he holds at Purdue, William Rowe, have written some of the most trenchant arguments uh, for evil, from from evil to the nonexistence of God. So I wanted to deal with his argument, and his argument is basically a rehabilitation of Hume's argument, that given the amount, distribution, and um, intensity of suffering that we find in the world, the best explanation, um, the most probable explanation is that, that the universe doesn't care about humans. Uh, it's more probable that the universe is indifferent to us than that it was created by a God, the theistic God. And so he gives this argument and I deal with it uh, because I think it's the best argument. And I basically uh, argue that it's, it, it, it doesn't f- succeed. Um, but that's why I wanted to explore that uh, question. All right. And uh Better than
0: pain is love. Then, so you discuss volitional, quality, relational, and emotional views of love, and you also um, you bring in Aquinas. So, um, how does uh, the existence of love? What does that have to do with argument from theism or naturalism?
1: Yeah, so I wanted to again, 11 features and love seems to be something we all care deeply about and it's present in our lives. And so what best explains that? So I spent some time exploring the nature of love. Um I love this quote by Joseph Piper, I think or Piper, I think that's how you say it. he's a Catholic theologian, philosopher. He said um the fundamental affirmation uh, at the bottom of love is I'm glad that you exist. I'm glad mm. that you are. And that just seems, that's really provocative, right? So I wanted to explore that idea um, of what love fundamentally is. So I spent some time exploring the nature of love. And as it turns out, as always, there's a pretty robust philosophical debate about these things. And so I canvassed the contemporary views. And they're the four views that you just mentioned. Um, And I canvassed each of them. And and even before that, though, I kind of noted these five features of love, that it's multidirectional, that it's complex, that it's... um, deep and enduring, that it's uh, active and passive, and then that it's something of deep value. And I asked of those four contemporary views, um, can they accommodate those five features of uh, these things that we've noticed about love, right? And I kind of walked through each of those views and argued that they don't. And then I kind of, from the four contemporary views, I return to a more traditional view of love that's found in Aquinas and beautifully uh, unpacked by Eleanor Stump in her book, Wandering on Darkness. But but uh, Aquinas says that love is is these two desires, the desire for the well being of the beloved and the desire for union with the beloved, and I've I, mm. and, and I, I think that this is this is what love actually is, and so I kind of argue that this is the one that accounts for all those features of love that I mentioned a minute ago. So I kind of unpack Aquinas' view of love. It's super attractive to me. It's the kind of love that I. That seems like the kind of love that I have with my family, my children, my friends, uh, you know, and myself too, right? Um, And then from there I move on to, well, wait a minute then. If that's what love is, it seems like it's actually the case that we have instances of that kind of love. What does that reveal about the true story of the world? And as it turns out, and I give this little – there's a probabilistic argument that goes something like, you know, um, I forget the details, but, you know, on theism – That kind of love is not surprising, but on naturalism, it's really surprising. Therefore, this is evidence for God, you know, theism or something like that, a little tighter than that. And why is this not surprising on theism? Well, for a very simple reason. On theism, the very center of reality is love itself, right? Love is fundamental to the world and to reality itself. Contrast that with naturalism. On naturalism, love is late- and local, as far as we know, it's here on the earth only, right? Um, it's a byproduct. It's not, it's accidental. It's not fundamental. And so it's surprising in that sense uh, that we have love. But it's not surprising on theism because God is, at least on the Christian version, God is love, right? God, it's part of God's essence. Um, and God creates in love. And so you would expect to find uh, creatures who can love. On theism, Um, And so, yeah, that's the kind of argument that I unpack there and then consider some objections to it.
0: All right. And so more on beauty now. Um, You consider beauty an objective reality. So um, a lot of people would not go for that. They say it's purely subjective. So how do you defend it as objective? And once again, how do you tie it in to uh, justifying a a theistic approach or, or foundation rather than naturalistic?
1: Yeah this was uh, this was one of my favorite chapters actually the love and beauty chapters were some of my favorites to think through and the beauty one in particular i really enjoyed because there's not been a, a lot of new work done on the argument from beauty to god there's a couple uh, fr fr tenant in the early 1920s i think i forget the exact dates was writing some some uh, work that was looking at the reality of beauty as an argument to god and then there's been a couple uh, more contemporary philosophers that have picked that up, but there's really not been much done on this. And so I really was grateful for the opportunity to think more on this. I do think that in the same way that there are physical facts, which nobody debates unless we're an idealist, but uh, don't worry about what that is. Um, In the same way that there are physical facts, uh, I've already argued at this point in the book that there are moral facts. And I gave you some reasons how and why I did that earlier. But in the same way that there are moral facts, I do think that there are aesthetic facts, that it's part of the objective feature of the world um, that there are these facts about beauty or there's beautiful things to switch from fact language to thing language. Um, And so I don't – so I do think you can give arguments and I do some of that in the book for why beauty is an objective feature of the world, right? And so one sort of really interesting argument that I'll just mention here in passing um, is whenever we do like our theory construction, so in philosophy and science, um, we have – When we do theory construction, we have certain virtues, uh, theoretical virtues. And these theoretical virtues are thought to be truth-indicative, right? If a theory has these virtues, that's supposed to be evidence that the theory is true. What's so interesting, though, all the truth-indicative theoretical virtues are aesthetic qualities. Simplicity, elegance, explanatory scope, and power, right? These are aesthetic properties. And what's so interesting is you're seeing what has historically been the view, this tight connection between beauty and truth. Um, you can't get rid of these aesthetic features in theory assessment. So it, it's suggestive of this tight alignment between truth and beauty uh, as well. But there's arguments, the same kind of arguments that I gave for um, the falsity of subjectivism. You can give those same kind of arguments for the falsity of um, aesthetic subjectivism and this view that beauty is merely in the eye of the beholder. Peter Forrest, who's one of the more contemporary philosophers says, you know, he basically um, in a mocking way says, you know, we would think it's crazy if somebody was staring at the beautiful night sky and saying, look at that sunset. So ugly. You know, look at that Rocky mountain. So ugly. Our intuitions are, that's crazy. Right. (laughs) And I think um, in some ways we see by the light of reason that there are things that are objectively beautiful. So from there, how does this figure into an argument from God? Well, I explain. I explore a little bit the nature of beauty, and I notice two features that are really interesting. Um, evidence feature number one, the world is saturated with beauty. <laughs> everywhere we look, from the from the universe itself to the microscopic, we see beauty everywhere. That's one fact that needs to be explained, or one piece of evidence that needs to be explained, the fact that the universe is saturated with beauty. The second fact that I think cries out for explanation is this transcendent quality that we find in beautiful things. Um that's the language I use, but it's this this um feature of beauty that many people, theists, non-theists, have noticed that there's kind of this evocative nature to beauty, that it, that it suggests infinite. It suggests something eternal, something permanent, something infinite, right? Um, And and why does it have this feature, this transcendent feature? Well, that's the, the other piece of evidence that cries out for explanation. And then I just plug that into an argument. Those two features of beauty are not surprising on theism, give some reasons. They're really surprising on naturalism, give a couple reasons. Therefore, it's not given these facts about beauty. Again, we have another argument for God. So these are probabilistic arguments, right? They're not unassailable but again, they're suggestive in a way that I think is pretty strong um, that beauty exists because God exists. All right. And finally,
0: you tie it all together um, with your presentation of Christianity as the true and good story. Uh, so how do you support those two assertions?
1: Okay. So by now, we're on the last chapter. We're at the, le- the 11th clue. <laughs> and here... Um, I think it's important that we consider the fact that um, throughout history and even today, many people are religious. And so that fact alone cries out for explanation. What's the best explanation for that? <laughs> and so I make a few claims in this last chapter. Here I'm being – this is the most personal of all the chapters, sharing a little bit of my own journey. And I claim that um, <clears throat> there can only be one true religion, and that's just a simple point of logic, right? Um the relig- and I just consider the axial religions the main, the big, the big five or six, uh, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, and maybe you can throw in religious pluralism, and even atheism as a kind of quasi-religion. And if you consider those six, however many there were there, uh, religions, um, they contradict each other on issues of fundamental reality, right? Um, and so by the law of non-contradiction, the law of logic, they can't all be true. So at best, one or at worst, none of them. But at best, one. there can be one true religion if these are if these are the main six contenders. So that's the first claim, and I just kind of argue that logical point. And then the question shifts from that to the evidence. And why I think that Christianity is the true story of the world? Why I think it's the religion that was founded by God? I'll just share my journey on this one. Uh, specifically, when I was a non-believer confronted with the, the claims of Christ, um, I tried to refute it. And I did so by trying to refute the resurrection. Uh, and the claims that Jesus made to be deity. And what I found was there's an incredible amount of evidence that the resurrection actually happened in history. That's why this historical piece, this historical apologetics matters, right? I was super persuaded by it, and I still am to this day. And so I think we have good evidential base for thinking that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And at this point, we already have all this evidence that there's some transcendent reality that explains all these features of the world, including our existence itself. And so we can't have like a non, a natural a, a non-supernatural bias, right, at this point in the story, right? Um, and so miracles are possible because God exists, right? And so the question is of, of the theistic views out there, which one best explains it? And I think that's why you begin with Jesus and the resurrection. So it's true because Jesus claims to be God, and he backs it up with the resurrection. I share a little bit about that. And it's not just true, it's good and beautiful as well, and and that's because in the Christian story, I believe you get everything that you want in a good story. You have that existential set that I mentioned earlier, you have all of it, right? You find your identity. You discover your true name. You find your purpose. You find what happiness amounts to, union with God and harmony with each other and right relationship to the world around us and ourself and, and the end for which we've been created. You find a purpose. You find value objectively grounded in, in deity and on and on and on. And so, um, yeah, it's it's the true story of the world, but it's also a good and beautiful story too, And that's good because we want a story that's both true to the way the world is but true to the way the world ought to be or as lewis would put it to go back to c.s lewis um christianity alone is the perfect blend of reason and romance it's true myth right it satisfies all the deep longings of the heart and it's good and true as well
0: all right so that's an encouraging note to end on so we have a lot of hope All right. Well, I'm Dennis Metzler. You've been listening to The Charge. We've been with Dr. Paul M. Gould, um, the author of Cultural Apologetics and a Good and True Story. Uh, Follow the links below. You can purchase them. So excellent books. read them both straight through. So um, Dr. Gould, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: You're welcome. It's great to be with you, Dennis, and blessings to you and all your fine work as well. All right. Thanks. Peace to everyone.